Welcome to Episode 6 of Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma. There are several ways we could approach today's episode. We could discuss what the title means, for instance, or we could talk about this episode's intro, which is, as the pie lady puts it, the first of Hitchcock's more elaborate introductions. But on the surface, it seems to be the perfect episode to talk about retribution. Now, retribution was the term used to describe Hitchcock's outros on episodes where the killer or the thief or the criminal seems to get away with their crime by the end of the episode. In these outros, Hitchcock would tell us that the perpetrator has indeed been punished for their crimes, sometimes describing something so absurd or elaborate that the audience knew that he didn't mean it. Nevertheless, these served as cover for the network censors. Now, this is the first episode, as you'll see, where crime seems to pay, but we're not going to talk about retribution this time. Instead, we're going to talk about missing clips. I have watched the episode both on the DVD collection and online, and each episode is identical. The outro is a small closing piece that has nothing to do with retribution. But it is also clearly the piece that follows the sponsor break. You'll recall that the way it usually works is the episode ends. It goes right to Hitchcock. He says a little something. He throws it to the sponsor again. After the sponsor break, he comes back for some little closing thing that then leads us to the closing music. In both versions I've watched, the only thing that is there is the final piece with the closing music. And if you look at the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion by Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom, it features Hitchcock's closing narration prior to the final commercial. So apparently it was there at some time. It was there presumably when the show was originally broadcast, but has become lost in the meantime. There's also the case in this episode of Maxine Cooper. Maxine Cooper is third in the list of closing acting credits following our two leads. And Maxine Cooper was an accomplished actress who appeared in the Twilight Zone episode and When the Sky Was Opened, but was mainly known for playing Velda, Mike Hammer's Gal Friday, in the film noir classic Kiss Me Deadly, which starred Ralph Meeker, as we talked about in our first episode. Now, according to the credits I've looked at, Maxine Cooper is either free to the maid, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, or Mary, according to IMDb and the Hitchcock Zone website. I can't find Frida the Maid anywhere in this episode. And Mary is a dressmaker who has no lines, is in about three seconds of the episode, and whose face is never seen straight on. She doesn't look like Maxine Cooper to me. As I said, Maxine is listed third in the list of closing acting credits, so it seems like the role should have been something more than just somebody standing around in the background. So this is the first time we're encountering this, and we're going to encounter this more and more as time goes on, particularly with the Hitchcock outros, where it seems like there are parts of them missing. And as I said, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion seems to have all of them. There must be transcripts somewhere that they took a look at. Or there are copies of these episodes somewhere that have the complete episode. If you know of any of these copies anywhere, please let me know. For now, the best thing I can do is read what Martin Grahams Jr. and Patrick Wickstrom have, and I'll try not to do it in my lame Alfred Hitchcock impression. Okay, 
I quoted the pie lady earlier, saying that this is the first of Hitchcock's more elaborate introductions, and it is on a movie set. Hitchcock is sitting in his director's chair, his back to us. Mr. Hitchcock is written on the back of the chair. He has a crew around him, cameramen, lighting men. There's an actor, and he's shouting out instructions to them, and we'll let Hitch take it from there. Hold it, hold it, wait a minute. Look, I, Jack, I think you've got much too much fill light. I mean, look, this is supposed to be a night scene. This is full of daylight. Quiet, quiet back there. Oh, oh, I beg your pardon. Oh, oh, good evening. We wanted to take you behind the scenes for a moment to show you how we make our films. The friendly cooperation of many, many people is needed to bring you these stories. Prop men, makeup men, electricians, cameramen. All part of a team. I'm very proud of them, and they in turn... <laughs> During the course of this intro, Hitchcock has gotten up from his chair and walked towards the camera to speak to the audience. That sound was the sound of a huge Klieg light falling from above, landing on his chair and smashing it into firewood. You know, I sometimes consider getting out of this business. Now, about tonight's show, our story is entitled... Oh, but the title's unimportant. Tonight's story concerns, well, well, small matter. I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you will enjoy our story, but first, but first, well, if you've been watching this program, I'm certain you always know when we have, but first, here it is. So here's Salvage. First broadcast, November 6th, 1955. Starring Gene Barry and Nancy Gates, directed by Justice Addis, with a teleplay by Fred Freeberger and Dick Carr, based on a story by Fred Freeberger. So the story opens with Lois Williams walking into Lou Henry's nightclub and going up to the bar. And the bartender says, Sorry, miss, but we don't serve unescorted ladies at the bar. Yes, he really does. This apparently used to be a thing at one time. In his article, Drinks with a Chaser of Sexism, on the Daily Beast website, David Wandrich writes, but in the 1940s, in the 1950s presumably, most respectable full-service restaurants, ones that is with bars, placed severe restrictions on unescorted women if they allowed them at all. They could only sit at tables. They could stand at the bar, but only until 6 o'clock. They couldn't come in in groups smaller than three, etc. All of this was supposedly precautionary, lest they prove to be hookers on the prowl. Lois looks like the furthest thing from a hooker. This is one of the things about the episode that bothers the pie lady. She says, why is she dressed like a Sunday school teacher? Why not have her dress sort of shabby and hookery? Well, Nancy Gates, who plays Lois, has this all-American girl, sweetheart kind of look to her, which may not be the right look for Lois Williams. The pie lady heaps even more scorn on her, saying at one point she crosses her hands over her stomach the way squirrels do. She looks like a giant squirrel, come to think of it. But actually, I think Nancy does a very nice job in this role. And if she doesn't really look the part as you'd expect the part to look, I think that could be a plus, because you're looking at someone who exudes an innocence that may not actually be there. Let's look at Nancy Gates for a moment. 
Nancy Gates was born in 1926. At the time of this recording, she is still with us at the age of 92. As a kid, she was described as a child wonder, to the extent that she gained a contract from RKO at the age of 15, which required court approval because she was a minor. Her first production with RKO was Hitler's Children in 1943. IMDb says of this film, this lurid expose of the Hitler Youth follows the woes of an American girl declared legally German by the Nazi government. Nancy eventually ended up in a whole lot of television shows, including two episodes of Burke's Law, which was the series that starred Jean Barry. She plays the defendant in three different Perry Mason episodes. She was married to Hollywood attorney J. William Hayes, whom she met when he was a pilot and she was a passenger on one of his flights. They had four children, two of whom became Hollywood producers. And she retired from acting in 1969 to be closer to her family. Her last appearance on television was an episode of The Mod Squad. She does appear again in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She's in Portrait of Jocelyn, episode 28. All right, so the bartender gets Lou Henry, and the first thing Lou says to Lois when he arrives is... We've got a rule here. No ladies without an escort. I want a high-class place. Just in case you didn't get it the first time. This isn't the only time we get told things more than once in this episode. Coming right up is exposition theater between Lou Henry and Lois, giving us all we need to know, and done pretty well, actually. But then when Lois goes to visit Tim Grady at his apartment, she tells us a lot of the same stuff again. Anyway, here's Lois and Lou. Has he been here yet, Lou? Has who been here? You know who I mean, Dan. You'll see him soon enough. If I know Danny, he'll be looking you up pretty quick. You think you'd give me a chance to explain? Danny spent five years in stir. He's had a lot of time to think. He don't need explanations. His mind's made up. He was in prison when it happened. Danny's got friends. They told him about it. I'm surprised to see you still in town, kid. That's not very smart. Oh, would it help me if I ran? He'd just follow me, that's all. Look, my only chance is, is to talk to him, to, to try and make him understand what happened. What's to understand? Danny takes the rap to save his kid brother, and while he's locked up, you talked the kid into pulling another job. Richie wanted to pull that job. I helped him, but he wanted to. And who squealed to the cops when the keeper backfired? Who put the blame on Richie? Who told the cops where Richie's hideout was? I broke down when they questioned me. That's all that could happen to anybody. I didn't know Richie would try and shoot his way out. I didn't know they'd have to kill him. They didn't kill him, baby. You did. Dan, let me talk to him, will you? I got work to do. Okay, got it? Dan took the rap for something that Richie did and served five years in prison as a result. While he was in prison, Richie pulled another job. Lois may have talked him into pulling another job. Lois squealed on Richie, and Richie was killed by the cops. Dan blames Lois. So getting nowhere with Lou Henry... Lois goes to Tim Grady's apartment. Tim appears to have nothing to do with all of the skullduggery in this episode. He's a ladies' man type with whom Lois is in love. A lot of the exposition, as I said, is repeated there, except that Lois also reveals to Tim that she talked Richie into pulling the job for Tim. Why do you suppose I talked Richie into pulling that robbery? So I could get half the money. So I could dress well to please you. You always liked me when you thought I had money, didn't you? Lois, please. Don't you see, Tim? I did it all for you and you don't care. This is one of the things I really like about this episode. Lois's motivation. 
it's consistent throughout the entire episode. Everything she does is because she wants Tim back. It may not say much about her character, but it's rock solid. It's there throughout the entire episode. And it works in terms of everything she does during the episode. Tim could care less. He's a smarmy type that only makes us like Lois all the more. It's another interesting aspect to this episode, the way Lois's negatives are sort of tamped down so that we'll sympathize with her. Tim is actually expecting someone for dinner. He has a little table laid out. Lois, jealous, comments on this, and he tells her, oh, it's a business meeting. But then she finds a flower next to one of the plates and knows full well that you're not giving a flower to a business associate. So realizing that Tim doesn't care, she goes back to her room in a cheesy little hotel, and the phone rings. It's a nice patient phone, as you can tell, with a pause in between the first and the second ring. Now, when Lois was in the bar, she lit up a cigarette, took maybe one puff on it, and put it out as soon as Lou Henry showed up. Now, here, when the caller hangs up, she lights her second cigarette of the show. This one she also puts out immediately as she hears the elevator coming up. Not locked. Welcome back to town, Dad. And that sound at the end there is Lois lighting a third cigarette, only to have Dan knock it out of her mouth. So, in all, Lois lights three cigarettes, gets maybe two puffs total out of them. And I'm pretty sure she never smokes again, which may be an indication that she's gone from being a bad girl to trying to be a good girl. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. All right, so Dan has shown up, and Dan is played by Gene Barry. Now, we encountered Gene already three episodes ago in Triggers and Leash. So we don't need to go through his career again. We've already done that. But I do want to come back to one film that I mentioned in the Triggers and Leash podcast for a clarification and because of a connection between that film and this. And that film is Atomic City. In the Triggers podcast, I referred to Atomic City as a science fiction film. That's a little deceptive, if not entirely wrong. It's only a science fiction film in that it tells a fictional story with a science background. Actually, it's a thriller using Los Alamos as its backdrop. Gene Barry plays atomic scientist Frank Addison, and communist agents kidnap his son Tommy in an attempt to force him to turn over the secrets of the atomic bomb. The film is already dated when it comes out because Julius and Ethel Rosenberg have already been tried and convicted of giving nuclear weapons secrets to the Soviets the year before. But it's still an exciting and suspenseful film that gives you a real sense of Cold War paranoia. And if you like those sorts of 50s films, I recommend it. But my main reason for mentioning the film is because Tommy's teacher, Ellen Haskell, was played by Nancy Gates. Now, Gene Barry and Nancy Gates appear together in a couple of scenes, but they only talk once, and that is over the telephone. Still, I'm going to play that just to hear the two actors together three years before in very different roles. 
I'm very sorry, Miss Haskell. Tommy should have told you he was going to leave early. I picked him up outside the hotel. But, Dr. Addison, you had no right to do that. I ran all over the fiesta looking for him. That was a horrible thing to do to me. Tommy deserves a paddling for not telling me. I'm sorry. I'm to blame. You certainly are. It was completely thoughtless of you. I'm sorry. Tommy's ticket won the bicycle. He'll be very happy you won. Tell him he has one week to claim the bicycle. No, I can't tell him now. He, he, he went to the store with his mother. He'll have to present the ticket in the lobby of the Lafonda. Yes. They're keeping the unclaimed prizes there. Yes. Remember, he'll have to appear in person before Thanks, the end Ma. of the week. I'll tell Tommy. The point of that scene is that Dr. Addison knows that Tommy has been kidnapped, but he's trying to keep it quiet. If that intrigues you, go check out the movie. It is available at the Ann Arbor District Library on DVD. We'll see Gene Barry again, but not until way down the line in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, Dear Uncle George. Back in our story, Dan Verrill prepares to kill Lois Williams for what she did to his brother Richie. You're not even scared. You should be. How do you think Richie felt with a cop's bullet in him? Did you ever wonder about that? I've wondered. Well, you're going to find out. Look, Dan, get it over with. Don't make any speeches. Go on. Beg. Get on your knees and beg. I don't mind what's going to happen. I've got nothing to live for. What are you giving me this routine? You've got nothing to live for. Less than two hours ago, you were pleading with Lou Henry to talk to me. I know. Lou convinced me no one was going to help me. Then I saw Tim. All right, so you saw Tim. So what? So I've lost him, too. How long have you lived in this dump? About three months. Answer me another question. When you told the cops where Richie was hiding, did you think of his wife? Did you think of his kid? You knew Joan. You've seen that kid. Answer me. I only thought about Tim. Of course she did. At this point in our relationship with Lois, we wouldn't expect any other answer. Anyway, Lois tells Dan she's entirely to blame for Richie's death and to get it over with. She wants to die. Dan is not happy about this. This is like doing you a favor. Maybe it is. If I weren't sure you'd do it for me, I'd probably go find a nice high bridge somewhere. I don't like it. If you were, if you were scared, if you pleaded with me, it'd be easy. This way. Then we get this odd, abrupt segue that could give the whole twist away. Maybe it does. But I think Gene Barry pulls it off. As Dan says, What did you do before you got mixed up with that crowd downtown? Used to design dresses. Did you make any money at it? A little. I was pretty good. Maybe I... Maybe I was wrong. Maybe... You did feel bad about the way Richie got it. Look. I've got some dough. 
next few years while I'm on parole, I gotta find a way of going legit. I wanna go into a business, an honest business, so it look good for me when the cops check up. So? So maybe you can help me. See, all of my friends are mixed up in the rackets one way or another. But you're out of it. So maybe you can help me. I don't understand. Maybe you will one day. And I think that's a pretty good bet, right at the end of the episode. I'd like to stop here for a moment and talk about the directing and the director a little bit. That whole scene between Gene Barry and Nancy Gates is filled with a lot of two shots, cameras sort of shifting back and forth. It's very pedestrian directing. Now, I'm not sure exactly what you could do with that scene to spice it up that wouldn't make it too noticeable. But the whole episode is pretty much like that, except for one shot at the end, one really nice shot at the end. And even that is sort of ruined a little bit. We'll get to that when the time comes. So for now, let's look at the director, Justice Addis. And Justice Addis was a television director all the way. He directed for all sorts of different programs, and he had multiple episodes with a number of programs. Ten episodes of Rawhide, 16 episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and 38 episodes of Schlitz Playhouse. He directed three Twilight Zone episodes, The Odyssey of Flight 33, The Rip Van Winkle Caper, and No Time Like the Past. Again, solid episodes, not exceptional. This is the first of 10 mostly unexceptional Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes that he directs. His next is A Bullet for Baldwin, which is episode number 14. And Justice Addis died in 1979 at the relatively young age of 62. So Dan puts up the money for Lois's dress shop. We jump ahead in time to the dress shop. Lois is looking very successful. She has a number of people working for her. There's a very distracting mannequin in the background of this scene whom I didn't realize was a mannequin at first. And since I was looking for Maxine Cooper, I at first thought maybe that's Maxine in the background there, but no. Lois is planning the opening of her dress shop and Dan comes to visit. She tells him that she would like some more money to advertise the dress shop, $5,000. Dan promises to get it because, as he tells her, I just want you to be happy. I will be if people come to the opening. People come to the opening. That's the first, I believe, of Dan's I just want you to be happy lines, also tip-offs to what's going on in the episode. Dan goes to Lou Henry's bar and borrows $5,000 from Lou, who's happy to give it. But Lou also tells him he's making enemies among Richie's friends. And one of Richie's friends, Shorty, is in the bar. Shorty comes over to confront Dan. I hear you're selling petticoats now, Dan. You hear a lot of funny stories, don't you? Should have been at Richie's funeral. Real sad. Richie's wife was all broken up. Get lost, Shorty. I was there. All Richie's pals were there. Only Lois Williams wasn't there. I said get lost. Now, you may have recognized Shorty's voice. Shorty was played by Elijah Cook Jr. And Elijah Cook Jr. had a very robust and long career. He was gunned down by Jack Palance in Shane. He appears all over television. He was Samuel Cogley, the Luddite attorney who doesn't use computers. Books, Captain Kirk, books! in the Star Trek original series episode, Court Martial. He's in the 80s Twilight Zone episode, Welcome to Winfield. He appeared in Bat Masterson and Burke's Law. 
both starring Gene Barry. He's in the thriller episode, The Fatal Impulse. Near the end of his life, he was in 13 episodes of Magnum P.I. and appeared in the sitcom ALF as Willie's Uncle Albert. But what he's mainly known for is the role of Wilmer, the gunsel, in the Maltese Falcon. Where is he? What? Where is he? Oh, Cairo. What do you think you're doing, Jack? Kidding me? I'll tell you when I am. New York, aren't you? Shove off. You're going to have to talk to me before you're through, Sonny. Some of you will. And you can tell the fat man I said so. Keep asking for it and you're going to get it. Plenty. I told you to shove off. Shove off. People lose teeth talking like that. If you want to hang around, you'll be polite. This is part of what IMDb says about Elijah Cook Jr. Although this pint-sized actor started out in films, often in innocuous college student roles, in mid-30s rah-rahs, playing alongside the likes of a pretty Gloria Stewart or a young pre-Oz Judy Garland, casting directors would soon enough discover his flair for portraying intense neurotics or spineless double-dealers. Thus was he graduated from the innocuous to the noxious. Just as an aside, I should mention that in one of those episodes of Magnum P.I., he played a character named Wilmer, clearly a tip of the cap to his Maltese Falcon character. And Elijah Cook Jr. died in 1995 at the age of 91. Let's get back to Shorty's conversation with Dan. I was a pal of Richie's. I figured you were even a better pal, his own brother. I figured when you got out, you'd even a score. He always looked up to you. So what a great guy you were. Well, in my book, you're a louse. Taken up with a dame that got him killed. Why, you're a no good, dirty. Go wash your face. Go wash your face may sound like an odd insult, but it's not an insult, actually, because... If you're watching the episode, you know that Dan has thrown his whiskey in Shorty's face. Okay, it's time for the grand opening of the dress store, and there's a big party going on. Lois is having the time of her life. She's dancing with various people. Dan comes in, and he dances with her. And once again, he tells her, I just want you to be happy, that's all. I'm doing my best. How about you? Are you happy? Just being near you, seeing the way you are now, that's good enough for me. Dan, you know how grateful I am to you for everything. Lois, I don't want gratitude. I find it tough to say how I feel. Well, it used to be easy for me to talk. I, I just lie. Get anything I wanted that way. Get out of any difficult situation just by telling a few lies. But I can't seem to do that anymore. Especially to you. I wouldn't want you to. The terrible thing about being truthful is that I have to hurt you, Dan. You're the one person above all others that I don't want to hurt. There's only one guy for me. Still suffering from the same old torture, aren't you? Sorry. I, I wish I could forget him. I, I wish it were different, but I can't forget him. He lives over at the Carlton Arms, I hear. I think I'll have a talk with him. Dan, you're not... No, no, don't you worry. I'll fix everything. I'll do everything you'd want me to. 
as we'll eventually find out, everything that Dan says there means something different than what we think it means. It's certainly different than what Lois thinks it means. And after you hear the twist of this episode, if you go back and listen to that dialogue again, it's quite good. So at 3 o'clock in the morning, Dan visits Tim, and he tells Tim that he'd like to see Lois get married, and that he would like Tim to marry her. In fact, he insists that Tim call her right then and there. And he makes a point of saying that Lois has lots of money now, and that he, Dan, will disappear as a partner, leaving it open to Tim. Tim, who apparently likes lots of money, as we found out when Lois set Richie up with the bank job, calls Lois immediately. Which brings us around to the next day in the dress shop, where Lois is on top of the world. Just declared a national holiday. Dan, band should be playing, flags should be waving, everyone should have a holiday. Life is so wonderful, Dan. You're feeling good? Oh, you don't know how good. Tim was here this morning. He, he asked me to marry him. He said you wanted it that way, too. I want you to be happy. Oh, I am happy, Dan. I, I just don't know how to thank you. You've been so wonderful to me. Oh, forget it. You say people are nice because it makes them feel good. I feel good, Lois. Real good. You know, after Tim asked me to marry him, I, I couldn't help thinking back. That night in my hotel room, remember? When you just got out of jail? I remember. I had nothing to live for. I, I didn't care. I almost wanted you to kill me. I know. And I said I wouldn't because it would be like doing you a favor. Tell me, Lois. Are you really happy now? Happier than you've ever been? Oh, yes. I'm the happiest woman in the whole world. Oh, Ben, I owe you more than I can have. Yeah. Everything to live for. Just like Richie. And that's the twist. Were you wise to it? Dan has made sure that Lois has everything to live for. And then he kills her. I mentioned before that I thought that Justice Addis had one really nice shot in this episode. It comes right here at the end. Lois turns while she's talking to Dan. She goes over and she opens the window and looks out the window. The camera positions itself from outside the window looking in at Lois. Dan is behind. Most of Dan's body is blocked by Lois's body. Dan reaches into his pocket to pull out his gun. You can sort of see some movement back there. You can see Dan's face and part of his body. Once you know what's happened, you realize he's going for his gun. But until you find that out, you don't really know what that movement means. So we actually have Dan on camera pulling his gun out, but we don't see it because it's blocked by Lois's body. Unfortunately, Justice Addis spoils that a little bit. Instead of having Lois turn around, keeping the same shot, and shifting her body just enough so that we can see Dan with the gun. Instead, he does a quick cut to Lois close up as she turns, then cuts back to Dan with the gun. So we don't get that continuity of actually realizing, oh yeah, Dan was pulling that gun out while Lois's body was blocking our view. We get it, but it doesn't have the same sort of impact. And then once Lois is shot, we get a close-up of her face screaming, 
And it dissolves into this melting oil painting kind of view like she's underwater, which I also don't much care for. But that one shot of Lois at the window with Dan behind, I think is beautiful. Let's take a moment to look at a few of our supporting players. Peter Adams plays Tim Grady. And Peter Adams was born James H. Adams II. So he changed his name from James Adams to Peter Adams. There was probably an actor already named James Adams. We won't see Peter Adams again in the series. He died in 1987 at the age of 69. Ralph Montgomery plays the drunk that accosts Lois at the beginning of the episode, which I did not include in any of the clips. He is also in The 27th Day with Gene Barry as Man in Bar. He's in a lot of TV from I Love Lucy to Burns and Allen to Ozzie and Harriet to The Man from Uncle to Kolchak the Night Stalker. He's in one more Alfred Hitchcock episode. Shopping for Death, which is episode 18, and he died in 1980 at the age of 68. And Peter Adams and Ralph Montgomery both appear in the War of the Worlds film that stars Gene Barry, though in small roles. Paul Breyer plays Lou Henry, and he was born Gabriel Paul Barrere. If that last name sounds familiar, or that middle and last name sounds familiar, it is because he is the father of Paul Barrere, who is the guitarist and singer from the band Little Feet. Paul Breyer is also in Notorious, The Wrong Man, and Vertigo, but all in uncredited roles. He's the bartender in the Twilight Zone episode And When the Sky Was Opened, an episode that also features Maxine Cooper, who, you'll recall, does not seem to be in this episode, even though she gets first billing under Gene Barry and Nancy Gates. Paul Breyer played a lot of bartenders. He was a bartender in Harry O, The Streets of San Francisco, Gomer Pyle, Screen Director's Playhouse, 17 films and the Rod Serling scripted The Time Element, which was originally a pilot for The Twilight Zone that ended up on Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. My favorite of his IMDb credits is in Arthur Haley's The Money Changers, a 1976 miniseries where he is listed as bank customer with broken arm. Now this is his only Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance, and Paul Breyer died in 1985 at the age of 75. Edit Angold plays Hilda, who appears to be the maid in the dress shop. She was born in Berlin as Edit Goldstadt, and she immigrated to the United States in 1924, where she appeared in New York in many German-language theater productions. I mention her pretty much because she will appear in two more Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one Alfred Hitchcock Hour. She's next in the episode Sylvia, number 16 of season three. She died in 1971 at the age of 76. Virginia Christine plays one of the employees in the dress shop, and she's best known for having played Mrs. Olson in the Folgers coffee commercials. Come on in, Mrs. Olson. Welcome to feeding time at the zoo. Oh, my. Well, they certainly seem to like everything, Mary. Thank goodness they're not like their father. He's always griping about my coffee. Well, admit it, honey. Your coffee is pretty bad. Oh, maybe he's right, Mrs. Olson. For the life of me, I can't seem to make good coffee. Good coffee's no problem. Just use a coffee with better flavor. Bullshit. Now, although Virginia Christine used an accent when she played Mrs. Olson, she didn't actually have an accent. But she did speak four languages, English, French, Swedish, and German. 
She was born in Stanton, Iowa, a town that later honored her by changing its water tower to resemble a coffee pot. And she had a long career besides being Mrs. Olson. She appeared in such films as Cyrano de Bergerac, High Noon, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Judgment at Nuremberg, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, oh, and Billy the Kid vs. Dracula. She's in the thriller episode The Twisted Image. Twilight Zone fans will remember her as Ethel, the subservient wife to hypochondriac Walter Bedecker, who's played by David Wayne, in the episode Escape Clause. She'll show up next, just three episodes down the line, in The Long Shot, episode 9, and she died in 1996 at the age of 76. Now, although the credits say that the episode is based on a story by Fred Freeberger, that story is actually a radio script entitled The Long Wait that appeared on the Suspense radio program on November 24, 1949. We've brushed up against the Suspense radio program in previous episodes, so maybe it's time to look at it just a little bit more in depth. Suspense was on from 1942 until 1962, a solid 20-year run. And during that run, it featured a lot of famous stars in various roles, including the one we're going to look at in just a few minutes. It was also known for a lot of ingenious writing. The mystery writer John Dixon Carr wrote a number of episodes for the show, and Louise Fletcher wrote several prominent episodes, the most famous perhaps being Sorry, Wrong Number, starring Agnes Moorhead, but also The Hitchhiker, starring Orson Welles, a script that Rod Serling later adapted into a Twilight Zone episode starring Inger Stevens, in which he changed the main character from Ronald Adams to Nan Adams. Alfred Hitchcock Presents adapted to television a number of stories that were originally on the Suspense radio program. But there's another connection that Alfred Hitchcock has to Suspense. He directed the audition show. CBS had a summer radio series in 1940 called Forecast. Here's what our friend, the prolific Martin Grams Jr. says in his book, Suspense, 20 Years of Thrills and Chills. On the second presentation of July 22, 1940, Forecast offered a mystery horror show titled Suspense. With the cooperation of his producer, Walter Wanger, Alfred Hitchcock received the honor of directing his first radio show for the American public. The condition agreed upon for Hitchcock's appearance was that CBS make a pitch to the listening audience about his and Wanger's latest film, Foreign Correspondent. To add flavor to the deal, Wanger threw in Edmund Gwen and Herbert Marshall as part of the package. All three men, including Hitch, would be seen in the upcoming film, which was due for a theatrical release the next month. Both Marshall and Hitchcock decided on the same story to bring to the airwaves, which happened to be a favorite of both of them, Marie Bellick Lowndes' The Lodger. Alfred Hitchcock had filmed this story for Gainsborough in 1926, and since then it had remained as one of his favorites. Now here's Martin Grahams Jr. again, this time along with Patrick Wickstrom, in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, talking about the suspense radio episode, The Long Wait. What happened is that after I did the radio script, I sold it about three times, said author Fred Freeberger. I didn't want to plagiarize myself, but someone told me that anyone who sues for plagiarism in this business is out of his mind, or something like that. So I went ahead and sold it to different producers who asked for it. I guess I was so innocent at the time that somebody jumped on my credit and got in on the screenplay credit, which was common practice at that time. Usually I would have written the script for television by myself, but after Alfred Hitchcock bought it, someone else put their name on it. 
So Fred Freeberger seems to be saying that he did not collaborate with Dick Carr on this teleplay. Instead, Dick Carr took his previous script and rewrote it. There are some considerable changes from the radio show. Or perhaps there was an existing television script that Fred Freeberger had written that Dick Carr just slapped his name on. Now, Fred Freeberger has a mixed reputation in Hollywood, mainly for what he did as a producer. There's no reason to believe that he's unreliable here. On the other hand, we don't have Dick Carr around to defend himself, nor do we have Fred Freeberger around anymore, for that matter. Now, Fred Freeberger was a navigator in the Air Force during World War II. He was shot down and was a prisoner of war in Germany for 22 months. He went to Hollywood after the war with the intention of working in publicity, but ended up becoming a screenwriter due to a studio strike. This led to him being one of the co-writers of the film The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. From there, he mostly moved into television, where he wrote dozens of Western teleplays. And eventually, in the 1960s, he became a producer, first on Ben Casey in 1960, and then later lasting only 10 episodes of The Wild Wild West as he fought for a bigger budget. He also produced the third season of Star Trek. He produced the second season of Space 1999, and he produced The Six Million Dollar Man's last season. This is from Wikipedia. Freeberger has a dubious reputation in science fiction fandom due to his involvement in the final seasons of Star Trek Space 1999, The Six Million Dollar Man, and the cartoon series Josie and the Pussycats, all of which were canceled on his watch. This resulted in Freeberger being nicknamed the serial killer in some circles, although William Shatner as well as Nichelle Nichols refused to assign any blame to Freeberger for the poorly received third season of Star Trek. Martin Landau, however, blamed Freeberger for the changes and drop in quality on the second season of Space 1999. Martin Landau said, I'm not going out on a limb for this show because I'm not in accord with what you're doing. As a result, I don't think I even want to do the promos. I don't want to push the show anymore as I have in the past. It's not my idea of what the show should be. Fred Freeberger died in 2003 at age 88. This is his only teleplay for the Alfred Hitchcock Presents program. Dick Carr, whatever he may have done here, returns with episode 15, The Big Switch. So let's look at the long wait. Usually in radio shows, you need a narrator, one of the characters in the show. And in this case, Dan is the narrator. And Dan is played by Burt Lancaster. So the story doesn't begin with Lois coming into the bar looking for Lou Henry. It starts with Dan getting out of prison and being met by Police Lieutenant Bush. Don't get me wrong, Dan. I don't want to hound you. Then why begin, Lieutenant? Something you said to the warden before you left. You want to repeat on it? I told him I'd be back to the limit. In this town, we don't even like guys to steal apples off push carts. So when it comes to you murder... You can't touch me. I served my full time. I'm clean. We just got to sit back and wait for it to happen. Your brother died two years ago. Everybody's cooled off. Why don't you let it lay? I don't cool so easy. No, as we certainly know by now, Dan does not cool so easy. Now, in this version, Dan does not go seeking Lois Williams. Lois Williams seeks him. Lois Williams came in. Not exactly came in. She sort of slithered in along the wall, hung there like a busted balloon. The little rat was as beautiful as ever. The scared look in her eyes made them brighter, greener. She was wearing one of those curved gowns that she used to design for herself and was pointed up neat and tidy. She stared at the gun in my hand in a kind of a, a, kind of a glad, hungry way. 
Or I'd save you the trouble of coming for me. I'd have found you. But thanks anyway. What are you waiting for? I don't know. Go ahead. Kill me. Don't hurry me. The little rat was as beautiful as ever. I love that line. Lois is played here by Betty Lou Gerson, who was a veteran of many radio shows. So we know the story. It's the same story. But there are a few differences. In this case, Dan goes around and makes sure that all of the women who are associated with his cronies buy dresses from Lois. Richie's wife, June, June in the radio show, Joan in the TV program, finds out that Dan is working with Lois. Dan has given June money. She comes back and throws the money at Dan's feet. Then Dan makes sure that Lois's old friends throw a party for her. He threatens all of them with violence if they don't show up, and he wants to make sure that they're very nice to her, too. Well, June won't stand for any of this, and she talks Shorty into rubbing Lois out. Dan gets word of it, and he thwarts it. Please, Shorty! Lois, run! Run to me! this is all pretty extreme on Dan's part. It's much more extreme than anything he does in the television episode. He's burning some pretty serious bridges here, it seems to me, having Shorty and June arrested for the attempted murder of Lois, something he's going to do not too long after. But clearly, he wants to be the one that does it at the right time and place. So again, as in the TV episode, he gets Tim Grady to propose marriage to Lois, and it all comes down to the end that we're familiar with, with one small exception. I got to the dress shop at 10 o'clock the next morning. Lois was floating around like a, like a waft of loveliness. She touched the inkstand on her desk, moved a chair, straightened a picture, wasn't conscious of what she was doing. She talked fast and happy about things that didn't mean a thing. She flung open a window and hugged the inrush of air. She spoke with her back to me. Oh, Dan, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, isn't life beautiful? You're happy, huh, Lois? Tim was waiting when I got here this morning. He proposed. He said you wanted it that way, too. I guess I'm the happiest woman in the world. <laughs> Can I use your phone? Sure. Sure. Call Paris, Bombay, Shanghai. <laughs> Imagine it. Tim. I'm assigned Lieutenant Bush. Dan Verrill talking. I'm at Lois's shop. If you get here in five minutes, it'll be about right. Yes, Dan, I'm, I'm the happiest woman in the world, and I owe it all to you. She turned from the window and saw the gun in my hand. <gasps> now you're worth killing. <laughs> Exception being, of course, that Dan calls the police before he kills Lois and turns himself in. Now, from what I can tell, this episode doesn't get much love. The pie lady says this is the most sexist episode we've seen yet. It's ridiculous in its overt sexism, so overt that it's not even offensive. And she's right, really, from we don't allow unescorted ladies at the bar to Lois's single-minded obsession with Tim, it's pretty sexist. But it's also indicative of a film noir type that is sometimes over the top in dialogue and in action. 
but I think works here. The pie lady also says, I must admit it's easy to predict the twist, starting in that scene in the hotel room. I don't know if that's true. I first saw this episode so long ago that I don't really remember whether the twist took me in or not. You look back on it knowing the twist, and there were all sorts of clues that stand out all over the place. But that's a good thing. There should be clues along the way. And as I said, there really are some terrific moments like that conversation that Dan has with Lois at the party where she thinks he's coming on to her and he's just really pursuing his vendetta. TheMotionPictures.net says, This episode was a bit of a letdown for me. The premise is very intriguing and the big plot points of the episode were satisfactory in general, but there wasn't nearly as much suspense or drama as I would expect from a charged mob story full of anger and revenge. So there you have that. Let's get to my question for every Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode, and that is, is there any more to this story besides the twist, and in this case, besides the old cliche, revenge is a dish best served cold? Well, in the radio show, Dan is willing to sacrifice everything, be it Shorty or June or his own life, in service of his revenge. So in that case, the revenge becomes a poisonous thing, that brings down all around him. Like Hamlet, who sacrifices Ophelia, Polonius, Gertrude, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, and himself to eliminate Claudius in his own long wait. Okay, it may seem a bit much to compare a Fred Freiberger radio script to Shakespeare, but the radio script does cover some of the same territory. But in the TV episode, that territory is shoved aside. Richie's wife doesn't appear. The worst that Shorty gets is a whiskey thrown in his face. Dan doesn't even get caught at the end, except for Hitch's missing retribution outro. And then we have to ask, why was the title changed to Salvage? What was wrong with the long wait? Well, the main reason, I think, is that the main character has changed. The long wait is a perfectly good title when Dan is the lead. But in the TV episode, Lois is, and it doesn't work for her. So what does Salvage mean for Lois? One of the definitions of salvage, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is something extracted as from rubbish, as valuable or useful. The Oxford English Dictionary gives us the definition of salvage as a verb, retrieve or preserve something from potential loss or adverse circumstances. And the Cambridge Dictionary includes this definition, to try to make a bad situation better. So at first glance, it appears that salvage refers to Lois's life, which gains usefulness and value once it is extracted from the rubbish. This makes the ending all the crueler in that Dan allows her to salvage her life only so that he can take it away. But I think there's another way to look at salvage for Lois, and that's to look at the one thing above all that she is trying to salvage, and that is her relationship with Tim, which makes her talk Richie into pulling the job, which brings about Richie's death, which brings about her death. So her attempt to salvage her relationship with Tim becomes her one tragic flaw, and it leads to her destruction. On the other hand, maybe it's just a story that's all about the twist. The Pie Lady and MotionPictures.net don't seem to think much of it, but I do. If you're not looking for anything deeper than that, I think it's a very satisfying twist, and it's a good episode. So now it's time for that first retribution talk by Hitchcock. The only problem is, as I've already said, it's not there. So we're going to have to trust the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, which gives us this. Well, that's life, I guess. As you know, it is my painful duty to tell you what happens to characters in our stories after the curtain drops. So now for the results of this case. Lois was killed. A bullet wound. 
All the others lived happily ever after, that is, with the possible exception of Dan, who was promptly executed by the state. And now here is someone who would like to explain how you can live more happily, after which I will be back. You can find this episode on Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD set, available at the Ann Arbor District Library. You can also find the Maltese Falcon and the Atomic City at the library as well. The suspense radio show The Long Wait and the Folgers Coffee commercial can both be found online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, you can email me at scherzmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock in the subject line. Next time, Episode 7, Breakdown, starring Joseph Cotton, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And for Hitch's closing coming up, you need to know that what he is presenting to the audience is a new chair saying Mr. Hitchcock on it that has a bullseye on the seat. Isn't it lovely? All my fellow workers, prop men, electricians, and so on, bought this and presented it to me. Next week, we shall be back with another story. Join us then. That is, if you have nothing better to do.